a Lifetime original podcast. This episode covers topics that include murder and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. In October of 1988 in small town Bartow, Florida, Peggy Carr was waiting tables at the Nicholas family restaurant when she felt sharp pains in her chest. She thought she was having a heart attack. She told her daughter that her hands had gone numb and her feet were burning. When her husband got her to the emergency room, the doctors were perplexed. Peggy wasn't having a heart attack. It didn't seem like there was anything wrong with her at all. But Peggy said she felt like she was on fire. And worse than that, two of her sons, Dwayne and Travis, were starting to feel a tingling in their fingers too. The next day, they said they felt a burning sensation all the way to their bones. Peggy's symptoms kept getting worse. All of her hair fell out and eventually she couldn't even speak. She had to use sign language to ask the doctors over and over again, why, why, why? It wasn't until a neurologist examined her and her children that a chilling realization hit him. There was only one explanation that could possibly make sense. Peggy and her two sons, Travis and Dwayne, had been poisoned. Someone was trying to kill them. But why? What kind of person could do something like this? I'm Quinlan Posner. And I'm Carrie Ipema. And this is Crime of a Lifetime. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Peggy lies in her hospital bed. Her whole body feels like it's burning from the inside. And this hospital staff, they cannot explain what's going on. But she is a woman, so at first they're like, hey, this is probably psychosomatic. You're just imagining these symptoms. I'm sure that felt great to hear. I'm sure that felt really encouraging from her medical professionals. For better or worse, she does get worse. So for worse, I guess. So for worse, for worse, yeah. She gets worse. For better, they're like, okay, now we believe you. You're probably not imagining getting worse. You're definitely getting worse. Well, and also, her kids start experiencing the same symptoms, who are men. So they're like, okay, so we got to take this seriously. So they decide to call in a specialist, Dr. T. Richard Hostler. He's a neurologist. And he runs some more tests, and he comes to the realization that she was most likely poisoned. But it's not your run-of-the-mill poison. This is not something that you can pick up from a drugstore or a hardware store. This is a hard poison to come by. Dr. Hostler tells his colleagues that it might be thallium that she was poisoned with, for which there is no cure. Yeah, it's completely lethal, which is why it was outlawed in 1973. Uh, Carrie, let's talk about the side effects. According to the CDC, in high doses, Thallium causes nerves and muscles to shrivel 
and die. That is not something you want to happen to you or anyone you care about. It's colorless, tasteless, and odorless, which makes it impossible to detect without very special equipment and tests. And it works slowly and painfully. It is commonly known as the poisoner's poison. So, in 1988, when Dr. Hostler suspects that thallium is the culprit in the poisoning of Peggy Carr and her sons, he knows that the odds are that means it was intentional. He takes urine samples from Peggy and her two sons and has them flown to a lab in Atlanta for special testing. That's how rare this poison is. They have to ship it to Atlanta, to the CDC probably, to detect it. And the results are staggering. Normally, we all have traced amounts of thallium in our system, but Peggy, she has some thallium in her system, and it's not two times the amount. It's not 10 times. It's not even 100 times the trace amount in her system. Peggy has 20,000 times more thallium in her body than the average person, which is just insane. And they test her son's Travis and Dwayne's levels, and they're incredibly high, too. And by now, the poison has coursed through her body, and Peggy has fallen into a deep coma. Her question of why is left unanswered. Dr. Hostler tells Peggy's husband, Pi Carr, that he believes they have been intentionally poisoned, and Pi can't believe it. He doesn't think that anyone would dislike them enough to do that. But Dr. Hostler doesn't doubt that there's foul play afoot. He calls the Polk County Sheriff's Office to report an attempted murder. The case lands on the desk of Detective Ernie Mincy. Now, Ernie Mincy is this gray-haired, mustache detective. He has wire-rimmed glasses and a southern drawl. He has hundreds of cases under his belt at this point. And his first instinct is that homicide starts close to home which is, I think, we know to be typically the case. He suspects that it's Peggy Carr's husband, Pi, who would be responsible for the poisoning. Yeah, you would look at the husband right away, and they've actually only even been married for seven months at this point. Both of them brought kids into the marriage. So Peggy has three kids from her previous relationship, Sissy, Alan, and Dwayne. Pi has two, Tammy and Travis. So one of Pi's kids is sick, one of Peggy's. According to Peggy's son, Alan, Peggy was afraid of Pi. He was being verbally abusive. He was drinking a lot. Peggy suspects that he might have been cheating on her. And before the poisoning, she actually took her kids to a hotel for the night to get away from him. Their marriage was definitely on shaky ground. And Pi was conspicuously gone on a hunting trip the day that Peggy was poisoned, which feels like an obvious alibi or an attempt at an alibi, but it was very much like, I'm going out of town on this date. So again, their alarm bells are sort of going off. But if this was, in fact, a targeted incident on Peggy, it seems really strange to Detective Mincy that both kids are also sick. Dwayne is Peggy's, Travis is Pie's, and at that point, the two boys are in critical condition at the hospital. So just to be sure, the doctors decide to test urine samples from all of the kids, whether they're sick or not, and from Pi. And guess what? It turns out that every single person in the family has thallium in their systems. If Pi is trying to poison his wife, 
How could his whole family be exposed? How could he be exposed? It doesn't make sense. Detective Mincy starts questioning people close to the Carr family. Now that he's sort of ruled out Pi Carr, he needs to zoom out and see who else it could be. And he learns that just four months earlier, someone left an anonymous note on their doorstep. It read, You and all your so-called family have two weeks to move out of Florida forever, or else you all die. This is no joke. And it was addressed to Pi Carr. What's so strange about this is that the Carr family lives in a really rural area. They're just tucked among, I don't know, lakes and citrus groves and ranches. Sounds pretty idyllic, actually. And like Florida? Yeah, it does. It sounds a lot like Florida. Lakes because and it is citrus Florida. groves because it's Florida. Nice detective work there. Thank you. Call me Mincy. They do not have a bunch of neighbors that live close by, but the note feels very personal, other than the fact that they spell Pi's name wrong. They spell it like the dessert. Uh, and his name is P-Y-E, in case you were wondering, in case you have not heard the name Pi before. What is really striking is that whoever poisoned the cars did it very indiscriminately, right? They probably laced something in the house, and it would have been something that anyone could have been exposed to and was. So Detective Mincy has 400 items taken from the house for testing for thallium. He takes ice cube trays, empty Coca-Cola bottles, Peggy's homemade pickles, which delish. And of course, he takes rat poison, which to be clear, by this time, it should not have any thallium in it. But they're leaving no stone unturned. They want to find where the source of this poisoning was coming from. And of all of the items taken, four of them test positive for thallium residue. The four empty glass Coke bottles, all of which were consumed by Dwayne, Travis, and of course, Peggy. And this is really like an oh sh moment for police because this could mean that there is a big batch of Coca-Cola out in the world that is laced with one of the deadliest poisons of the 20th century. Immediately, Mincy calls the FBI and they send out this clean-cut young agent named Brad Breck to join him in the investigation in Florida. First things first, they send the unopened glass bottles from the car's kitchen to the FBI lab in Virginia for further testing. And on the surface, these bottles look completely normal. But of course, after further investigation, the lab reports back that the bottles have in fact been tampered with. The soda is full of thallium. To the naked eye, you would never have known these bottles had been opened and then resealed. The only way the lab can even tell is that they measure the CO2 in the bottles and they're just a little bit less carbonated than they should be. So whoever laced them really knew what they were doing and they were very careful. Just to recap as well, Along with these steps of testing the Coke bottles, they also test bottles of Coke at the grocery store and find that none of those have been tampered with. Detective Mincy and Agent Breck feel very confident that this is an isolated incident where the Carr family was specifically targeted. Peggy, Dwayne, and Travis are currently in critical condition at the hospital because someone they know wants them to be dead. Most likely, the same person who left that threatening note on their front doorstep is the same person who poisoned them with thallium. But who would do that? Well, 
According to the Behavioral Science Unit at the FBI, the investigators should be looking for an intelligent white male in his mid-30s, someone who doesn't like direct confrontation, but who is close enough to watch the poisoning play out. So Detective Mincy and Breck start interviewing Peggy and Pye's neighbors, and the general consensus in the neighborhood is they're pretty well-liked, they were kind, they kept to themselves for the most part, they were good people. Most of the neighbors don't even know about that threatening note that was left on the doorstep. After interviewing a dozen neighbors, Mincy and Breck go up to the home of George Treeple and Dr. Diana Carr. Please keep in mind, there is no relation to the Carr family that has been poisoned. It's just merely a coincidence that they live next door to someone with the same last name. When they get to the house, they notice that their house is the only one within viewing distance of Peggy and Pye's home. And immediately, the detectives can tell that these two are a little different from the other neighbors they've met. George does not like the cars at all. Right away, he says they are not really our kind of people. And he mentions that everyone in that house owns a pickup truck. He's like very comfortable in his elitism. But Agent Breck is also watching George. And he notices that underneath the table, George is shaking. His feet are shuffling back and forth. And so they ask George, why do you think someone would want to do this to them? Why why would someone poison these people? And George gives them a response that is pretty surprising. George says that someone wants them to leave the neighborhood. And it strikes Mincy that he used a phrase not unlike the threat that the cars received in that letter. And also, None of the other neighbors said anything remotely like this. It was a huge contrast to the shock and confusion that the other neighbors expressed. So Detective Mincy and Agent Breck do some digging, and they discover that George and Diana seem to have a lot of problems with the Carr family. Albeit the problems at first glance do seem to be pretty petty. I don't know, George and Diana complained a lot that their kids played the music too loud. Pretty benign stuff. But just a few days before the poisoning, Diana had gotten into an argument with Peggy over the music. As Pi would recall, it got pretty heated. He says Peggy was real fired up and that Diana yelled, you won't get away with this, and she walked away. Speaking with the police, though, Diana recalls this and says, you know, it was just a neighborly spat. It wasn't anything worth hurting someone over. You mean, oh, music wasn't worth a thallium poisoning? Yeah, it does Mm. seem like quite a big escalation. But this wasn't the only issue that George and Diana had with the cars. The detectives discovered that just a few months earlier, George Treeple filed a complaint with the zoning board about Pi building an apartment complex on his property. And all these neighborly mishaps are not just flowing in one direction, so to speak, because According to Pi's ex-wife, George liked to spy on her with his binoculars. And she suspects that he was behind a series of threatening calls to her daughter. The investigators also do some digging into George's past, and they discover that he has a criminal record. He served three years in federal prison in the mid-70s for his involvement in an illegal meth lab. That's right. He was the chemist. See, now that's pretty important because 
thallium is often used in the process of making meth, and it's not something that is easy to come by, like we said, unless you have the right connections, which a meth lab chemist might have. For Detective Mincy and Agent Breck, all of the circumstantial evidence points directly at George Treeple, and maybe his wife Diana was involved too. But that makes them the key people of interest in the poisoning of Peggy, Dwayne, and Travis. It feels like a pretty enormous stretch to say that this guy poisoned an entire family because they played their music too loudly. And a background in drugs, it's not, this doesn't equate to a background in murder. There also has to be some gut feelings on the detective's part. I mean, we find out that Peggy and Pie's marriage is not healthy and the word abusive is thrown around. And still, it's the neighbor with the noise complaint that catches the eyes of the police. I think it was more than the noise complaint. I really think it was meeting George. And I think that their blink went off, especially um, I know that um, they were used to monitoring behavior of people when they're being questioned. And I think that there was one thing he said that it's not always in the eyes or the hands. A lot of detectives will look there. It's usually in the feet. So when they look and they see those feet shuffling, Shuffling. I think it's a big signifier to them that there's something this person is hiding. And the idea that you ask everybody over and over, why would this happen? And everyone's going, I don't know, they were great, which is a standard thing, by the way, to say, especially when a family's fallen on hard times. And the idea that they asked this guy, George, and he's like, ah, probably someone wanted them gone. <laughs> it's like, whoa. But it's also really interesting because it feels like even the FBI's behavioral analysis is they're looking for a man in his 30s who avoids confrontation. So when the police walk into this house and you see George just like shut down and say these weird things and also, like, not not address the police, like, cower in physical demeanor and shuffle his feet. Yeah, their blink had to be just, like, mayday, mayday, it's this guy. We're talking about who did it, but we haven't really caught up with how Peggy is doing in the hospital. It has been five months, and Peggy is still in a coma. And sadly, on March 3rd, 1989... She passes away from thallium poisoning. And that means that police are no longer investigating a poisoning case. They are looking for a murderer. And keep in mind, Peggy and Pi's children, Dwayne and Travis, are still fighting for their lives at this point. By now, it's very clear that even if they do survive, they're never going to be the same again. The thallium has done so much nerve and muscle damage on their bodies that Travis is now paralyzed. Their older brother, Alan, is so torn up seeing his brothers in pain. They are unrecognizable to him. So he just starts to focus in on fantasies of harming the person that did this. But the investigation of the main suspect, George Treeple, hits a standstill. There's just not enough evidence to connect him to those Coke bottles. None of his DNA is present. There's not even his fingerprints on anything there. But like we said, the blink went off. Agent Brack, Detective Mincy, they really think this is their guy. They think that when nobody was home, George broke into their house, stole those Coke bottles, brought him home, laced him with poison, somehow resealed them, and then put the Cokes back in the next opportunity he had. 
And that could be what happened because according to Pi, their door was often left unlocked. They thought they lived in a pretty safe neighborhood, right? And the whole family was actually out of the house two days before the poisoning. In fact, Dwayne and Travis, while in the hospital, tell the police that in the days before Peggy got sick, they were thirsty and they went to go look for a Coke, but they couldn't find the Coke where they remembered placing it. And then somehow a few days later, it was back in the spot under the counter where they thought they left it. It was just this odd moment, but they just assumed that a family member had moved them. Oh, completely. I mean, if something goes missing in my house and then later it's back where I thought it might be, it, was it would never husband. occur to me that it was anyone else. It could no. have been me and I forgot. Yeah. But it could have been George is the point because guess what? George, the guy doesn't work. His wife is an orthopedic surgeon. She's the breadwinner. She supports him. And he sits at home all day doing uh, a lot of his hobbies and watching the comings and goings of the Carr family with his binoculars, maybe. He could have snuck in, but we can't prove that. The police have their theory, they have their motive, but what they don't have is enough evidence. But Detective Mincy and Agent Breck aren't going to let this case go cold. Peggy Carr's death lights a fire under their asses. But they don't have very many options. But there is one thing they haven't tried. They need an agent to go undercover and become friends with this guy, with George Treeple. It's really risky, but it could be their only chance at catching who did this. So they bring on Agent Susan Gorek. She is a sharp investigator, a dedicated cop. And at first her duties, they're pretty unglamorous, I gotta say. She's just in charge of like going to George's house and digging through his garbage. They're looking for anything that can give them a leg up. She discovers that George and his wife are members of a Mensa group. And Mensa is this organization for people with IQs in the top 2% of the population. So really smart folks. Apparently, George and Diana not only qualify to be members of this group, they are also leading the Polk County chapter. And every so often, George and Diana organize a murder mystery weekend for their members. And wouldn't you know it? There's one coming up. That sounds really fun. That sounds right up my alley. It's a murder mystery two times over. It's a murder mystery squared, and Agent Gorek is going to have to go undercover and arrive at this event. So she spots in the newspaper that this murder mystery weekend is looking for some more participants, and she sees her opening. So she writes an email to George under her alias, Sherry Gwen. She asks to join this murder mystery event, and George sends her back a welcome and a registration form. And on this form, she has to pick on it whether she will play the murderer, the victim, or a bystander. I think she's, like, not feeling um, like she wants to be front and center necessarily, so she does choose bystander. But there's one sentence on the welcoming brochure that really catches her eye. It says, Of course. Everyone will be a detective. And she really can't help but laugh at that. It's like, if only you knew. (laughs) 
If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The next month, April 1989, Agent Gorick, a.k.a. Sherry Gwen, arrives at the Winter Haven Holiday Inn ready to meet the suspect. The FBI's behavioral agent has coached her on how to sort of ingratiate herself to him, which is to be naive and deferential to George. Her goal is to make him feel like he's the alpha in the relationship. And frankly, that is also a tactic I use on first dates. Hmm. I can't believe that hasn't worked out for you. It's shocking. I don't think I'm as good as Sherry Gwynn is, I think, the answer to that. I think I'm not... I think I'm not as good. And also, my get life isn't better at, stake. at beta-ing. <laughs> I gotta get better at beta-ing. When she walks in to this convention, she recognizes George from his picture. He's a small, kind of pudgy guy with a beard and thick glasses. And he's just running around trying to help everybody out, getting ice, turning on the AC. He's, you know, sort of playing host. And Susan is right away struck by how all his friends or the others in this Mensa chapter sort of treat him like their servant, because I think she was picturing this is going to be a really sort of domineering, intimidating person. And then seeing the way that he's sort of cowering beneath his friends, beneath his wife, Diana, that image is wiped away. Yeah, she enters this being told by Detective Mincy and Agent Breck that George is 100% their guy. But after seeing him this way, she starts harboring a little doubt. It's like, how could a guy this week kill someone? She's seen wrongful convictions before in her years on the force, and at first, she's really worried that that's what this is. I mean, she's seen it before. We've talked about it before, where the police will get someone in their eyesight, and they will become laser-focused on that suspect, and they will ignore any other evidence to the contrary. And honestly, this guy George seems really harmless. Yeah, but no matter what he seems like, she's 
you know, she's at work. She's so there. She, yeah, she's she's got a job to do. She's got a job to do. She goes up to him. She starts a conversation. She's doing what she was coached to do, playing the clueless, naive new member. And George does take the bait. He's bragging to her about himself, about his intelligence. And he ends up telling her in this first conversation that he has a chemistry degree and a psychology degree. When she's a file on this guy, she knows that's not true. He does have a psychology degree, but unless you count running a meth lab as a chemistry degree, he does not have one of those. I mean, I guess if Walter White is listening, please, please call, please weigh in. He ends up telling Susan that he's so good at reading people's body language that he can tell when a person is lying just by watching the muscles in their jaw, which, understandably freaks her out a little bit. This whole thing is a lie. Her name is a lie. Can you imagine how self-conscious she got in that moment about what her (laughs) jaw was doing? (laughs) Like, I bet it twitched more. Oh my gosh. My, My jaw is twitching. I'm so nervous for her. But it isn't until the game begins that Agent Gorick finally sees what the police have been talking about with George Treeple. Yes, the dark side. So this murder mystery week is... You guessed it, a murder by poison. And among the evidence that he gives the players is a book that explains how to poison someone with a toxic plant. And one of the fake evidence pieces they have is a note written to the victim that reads, pay off now or wait till death does its part. And in a booklet about voodoo presented at this event, Agent Gorick reads, quote, When a death threat appears on the doorstep, prudent people throw out all their food and watch what they eat. Hardly anyone dies from magic. Most items on the doorstep are just a neighbor's way of saying, I don't like you. Move out or else. She's got to be reading this just losing her mind. It's had to be such a meta moment. Is this real life? Yeah, but at the same time, she's thinking, is this this guy's way? Is this George telegraphing to everyone who's playing what actually went down? None of these people are the wiser that George is even a suspect, though, in this poisoning that happens to be eerily similar to the game that they are playing this weekend for fun. During the course of that murder mystery night, Agent Gorick, a.k.a. Sherry Gwynn, her real name, Susan, endears herself to George Treeple. As part of her backstory, she tells him that she has this horrible ex-husband who she's trying to get away from. She's trying to divorce. And this is something that she does, you know, to further endear herself to him because a guy like George will be able to understand that. He knows all about domineering spouses. And so over the next few weeks, after the murder mystery event where they meet, she meets with George several times and asks for his advice as a friend in dealing with her ex. He suggests at one point she could blackmail him to get a better divorce settlement. Great idea, George. Got any more ideas? Why, yes. He even suggests at one point, although it's sort of a joke, I guess, that she could have poison flowers delivered to him. He also opens up to her so much that he ends up inviting her over to his home. 
and he shows her one of his secret rooms. And we don't know a lot about what is going on or what he keeps in this room, but what we do know is that during this visit and subsequent visits, he also shows his collection of BDSN gear, which is you know, a pretty big escalation of friendship, if you ask me. So maybe this room is where he stores this BDSM gear, or maybe it's just a secret office where he keeps his erotic fiction. I don't know. But a secret room seems like a big old red flag. So Susan then asks him about his neighbors, you know, under the guise of trying to create small talk, but I'm sure she's trying to get some recon about what's going on in the neighborhood. And he starts complaining about his neighbors And it becomes clear that he clearly hates his neighbors. But what's really odd is he doesn't even bring up that a neighbor was just poisoned, like, at all. And for this guy who loves murder mysteries, you'd think that he would bring this up, especially when he met this person at a murder mystery party that revolved around poisoning. It just seems weird that he's omitting this information. Yeah, I mean, I'm no good at small talk, but it does feel like a really natural bridge to cross. To me, the fact that he doesn't bring it up and instead finds other things to say, rather than being like, and by the way, you're not going to believe what happened the other week in my neighborhood. I mean, it's wild. That's the guiltiest thing yet. Yes, yes, absolutely. So... Susan is walking through his house and she happens to notice that on the table is a book titled The Pale Horse. It's actually an Agatha Christie novel, which that's on brand. It's a murder mystery. What's interesting about finding this book at George's house is that in it, it's about a killer who uses thallium to poison their victims. Is it a coincidence, Quinn? Mm, Me thinks not. What does Susan think? She also thinks not. Great minds. The great minds think alike. But there's more to George than just being this, like, brilliant guy with a grudge. I hate calling him brilliant, but he's a member of Mensa, so his IQ is pretty high. But there's something else happening. Susan finds herself relating to him. He's this guy who thinks of himself as sort of too strange to exist in normal society. And in some ways, becoming an undercover agent is her way of separating herself from society as well. She doesn't have to really engage honestly. She's always playing a role, and she stays one degree away from being her real self. And she sees this sort of commonality between the two of them. Both of them grew up separating themselves from the crowd, you know, staying at home, reading, self-isolating. And using this common thread, and dare I say empathy, she's able to get closer and closer and closer to him. Yeah, they get really close. And at one point in sort of an intimate friend moment, George starts to tell her about watching his mother die and how to cope with that, he had to pull back from himself so that he was just observing it, but was not emotionally there. And he tells her, you know, you could learn to do this too with practice. And Susan just sort of feels pity for George because she sees him as somebody that does have a great mind and probably could have put it to good use doing something to better his world. Or the world around him. But instead he uses it for petty revenge. And all the time Susan is spending at George's house, she doesn't see anything that could be used as concrete evidence of his guilt. After eight months of working undercover, 
she has no results. She doesn't have a secret journal. She doesn't have um, vials of thallium. She doesn't find a big case that says, evidence here, I killed them. She has nothing that could link George to the murder. Her colleagues are growing more and more impatient, and it's putting a huge strain on her home life. Every night when she comes home from work, she has to scrub off the perfume that she's wearing because it's a perfume that she wears as the character of Sherry. It's what Sherry smells like. It's not what Susan smells like. She's really doing everything she can to separate those two people that she has to become. She can't talk to her husband about her work. She cannot be seen in public with him or her children because she could run into George. She's isolating herself from her family in order to do this job. I do feel like I'm watching a movie. It's been eight months of this and that she has to keep all of this up. Like, I can barely lie once a day, if that, or to get out of a speeding ticket. Basically, I can't lie. But in all seriousness, the scary part of this is how George is unsuspecting, and that is so scary to me. Sure, but the longer that this is happening, the more she risks, because uh, at least we're being told this guy's smart, Mensa smart, whatever that is, <laughs> and it feels like the longer she's in this game, the higher the risk, the, the more likely it is that something will become a tell, that George will figure out what's going on. And you know, George is not a guy that if he figures it out, he's going to confront her. He's going to figure it out and he's going to hand her a burger. I mean, what's going to happen is she's (laughs) going to end up dead. He wouldn't lead on that he knows at all. And it would just be sneaky and manipulative. It's not like this guy gets rageful. He gets even. Mm -hmm. That's what's so scary. Well, something had better happen soon or she needs to get the hell out of there. Luckily, everything is about to change. In November of 1989, George Treepole tells Susan that his wife is moving her orthopedic practice to Sebring, Florida. So they're moving out of their house. And Agent Gorek sees this as a huge opportunity. She's got this whole backstory with her ex-husband and her divorce. So she wants to use that as an opportunity to move into George's old house. You know, so she can get away from her awful ex for a few weeks. And if George goes along with this plan and lets her rent his house, then the police will finally have the legal right to search the property. So she proposes this idea to George, and he actually agrees. What's the harm in helping a friend out for a few weeks? Once George and Diana move most of their things out in December of 1989, Agent Gorek, Detective Mincy, and Agent Breck and the forensic team go in. This is maybe going to be their last chance to find physical evidence that George was involved in the poisoning. Crime scene technicians wipe every single inch of George's secret room with cotton balls dipped in nitric acid. They leave no inch unswabbed. They swab the inside of the cabinets, sink drains, and anything that could show traces of thallium. They search the garage, which is full of cobwebs and junk. They find this tray of empty glass bottles, which of course they send directly to the lab for testing. And suddenly, while they're conducting this search, somebody knocks on the door and they're like, is it George? What's going on? 
Everybody gets quiet and hides, and Susan opens the door, and it's one of her neighbors coming to introduce himself. So she just kind of says, hi, sorry for not introducing myself earlier. I'm going to be living here a little while, blah, blah, blah. She shoos him away as quickly as she can, but this is really a wake-up call. They're on borrowed time. George could literally pop in at any moment. This is still his house after all. Yeah, he could be watching them from a distance with his binoculars, the creep. Yeah, I mean, point being, they have to hurry. All the cotton balls and the bottles are sent to a lab in Virginia for testing. And this is, like I said, their last chance at catching this killer. A month passes from when they send this onto the lab. Christmas, New Year's, and Agent Gorek still hasn't heard anything. Not a peep. She's spent more than a year undercover, and she has nothing to show for it, and she's just waiting with bated breath for these lab results. I guess they really took a long holiday break, and she's truly ready to hang up her alias, Sherry Gwynn, and move on. So she calls Agent Breck at the FBI office, and she tells him, look, I think it's time to quit the case. And he understands they're not really sure what else they can get from her at this point. She's gotten as close as she can to George, and they're still not catching him. This is wild. While they're talking, Agent Breck's line beeps. He gets a call from the other line. He tells her to hold on. And after a minute, she's on hold. After a minute, Agent Breck comes back on the phone with her, and he tells her that on the other line... That was the FBI lab. They've just gotten the results back from their search. I think he says it to her in like that faux depressed voice. Like he's like, well, (laughs) we just got back the results from the search. And the bottles that we found at George's house tested positive for thallium nitrate. And Susan is screaming. She's screaming for joy, and Agent Breck is shouting, we did it, Susan, we did it. We and did it, Joe. <laughs> while this is happening, Susan's husband is home, and he comes in the room and says, the last time I saw you this excited is when you found out you were pregnant. Is that it? And she's like, Gary, no, we found thallium. They find just a tiny bit of residue at the bottom of a bottle. And that is all they need to arrest George Trepal for the murder of Peggy Carr and the poisoning of her sons, Dwayne and Travis. It's so small, but fortunately, it's enough. They've got their man. On April 7th, 1990, Susan Gorick sits in her car across the street from George's Sebring home while the police prepare to make their arrest. She calls him at home just to ensure that he's there and that she can keep him there while she's on the phone. Luckily, he picks up. Obviously, she's still speaking to him under her alias as Sherry, and while she's talking with him, the police start to move in. And he's talking to her, and he says, oh, wait a minute, Sherry, the police are actually at my door. I gotta call you back. And he hangs up. At the front door, George's wife, Diana, is cursing at Detective Mincy and Agent Breck. Even after they present her with the arrest warrant and a search warrant, she physically blocks them from entering her home. A uniformed officer has to physically restrain her so they can get inside. And at the top of the stairs, George is there looking down at them while he's in his underwear. 
which frankly probably isn't that comforting to Susan to know that while she was talking him on the phone, he was just in his whitey tidies. But here we are. The police have to tell him to dress and then come downstairs so they can talk. In his kitchen, they inform him that he's under arrest for the murder of Peggy Carr. Susan watches all this from her car as George is brought out in handcuffs. She stays in the car where she can't be seen. She does not want to blow her cover yet, just in case George might give her more information later on. But once he's driven away, she gets to go into the house and search along with the other police officers. And upstairs, they find S&M gear, erotica, leg restraints, handcuffs, whips, you know, the usual. None of this is a surprise because he had already told Susan that he was into BDSM. But... Something that was pretty surprising, they go in the bathroom and they find a cabinet etched with the words, help, we are being killed. Implying that, I don't know, was someone held there at one point against their will? Downstairs, Susan finds more evidence. George has several books and binders full of information about poisoning. There's a police manual with a chapter titled Death by Poison and another book titled Poison Detection in Human Organs. He's got an interest in hobby, man. Yeah, he also kept a journal that they find with some pretty weird stuff written in it. One of the entries reads, Exposure to the ultrasonics makes a person irritable, and I've heard rumors that it is used for riot control in France. Would it be good to get rid of neighbors? Another entry says, there is no reason to stop doing anything unless you want to. If you're going to do something, accept that you're going to do it. Feeling guilt or conflict is the worst thing that can happen, much worse than what you do. It is bone chilling to look into the mind of a murderer. But there is one thing that Agent Gorak is looking for, but she just hasn't found it yet. In George's old house, he kept a secret room. He showed it to her once while he was giving her a tour. So she knew that in this new house, he would have to have a secret room there. It might be concealed behind a false bookcase or a wall. The search team scours the house for any evidence of a hidden door. And eventually, they're looking at this pegboard with tools hanging on it, and it's just a little uneven in a weird way. So an officer pulls at it, and it gives away and reveals a secret door. She was right. There is a secret room. And inside it, they find a freshly painted room with a single bulb hanging from the ceiling. You know the image. In the corner is a partially built table with arm clamps drilled into it. You know, restraints seemingly meant for a person. In this room, there are no windows and the walls are soundproofed, and it seems like George was working on sealing the room so that no one could get out. This room, it, it doesn't feel like it's an S&M chamber. It doesn't have like that 50 Shades of Grey sexy vibes that we'd have liked to tell you about. It seems like a torture room. It seems like it's an incomplete prison that was designed to keep someone against their will. Now. Everything we know about George so far tells us that he, I don't know, he doesn't seem like the kind of guy that would go out in public and pick a stranger and then, like, tackle them or, or, you know, take them down. He 
feels more like the kind of guy that would pick a victim that he already knows and somehow bait and switch them into this space. And Susan now is looking at this room and she is thinking in her head about all the times George invited her to this house, but she declined. She can't help but wonder if she was meant to be George's next victim. George Trepal goes to trial for the murder of Peggy Carr and the poisoning of Duane and Travis in January of 1991. The prosecutor is seeking the death penalty, but this isn't an open and shut case. All of the evidence that they have is completely circumstantial. Of course, with all the information Susan Gorick collected, it's made a lot easier, but still, there's a lot of circumstantial evidence. Yeah, it's piles and piles of evidence, all of it of that nature. George doesn't find out that Sherry Gwen is actually undercover cop Susan until his lawyer requests police reports from the prosecution. And so then he knows because she's listed as a police officer that was investigating this case. The next time he sees her in court, his reaction is chilling. He just smiles at her. And then when she goes, he cheerfully tells her, bye. Ooh, it's so chilling. Agent Gorick testifies against him in court, and it's some of the most damning testimony that they hear in the trial, and she tells the jury about the thallium they found in the bottles at his home. Also testifying at this trial, Dwayne, Travis, Peggy and Pie Carr's kids. Dwayne is still visibly scarred from the thallium poisoning. Travis testifies that he had to relearn how to walk after the poison paralyzed him. Neither of them have been the same since. And for the defense's part, what they try to do is pin the murder on Pi. There's no fingerprints that link George to the coke, and Pi is actually the only person with a clear motive to poison Peggy. His motive is in some ways better than George's. Of course, that would also have to mean that he poisoned his own kids too, and even risked poisoning his own granddaughter. The defense also poses that perhaps George's wife, Diana, could have been the one to commit these murders. Some of the most interesting parts of the story are not even allowed to be presented at the trial. Not the eerie etching in the bathroom cabinet or the secret rooms in George's houses or secret letters written by George. Almost exactly two years after Peggy Carr died, George Trepal is found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to death. Odds are it will be by lethal injection, but here we are, 31 years later, and he's still on death row. George seems content in prison for the most part. You know, he can read, uh, someone prepares all his meals for him, and most importantly, on Florida's death row, the inmates are prohibited from playing their TV or radios too loud. Carrie just alluded to some of the inadmissible stuff that did not get brought to the trial. And I feel like I do want to share it because it's pretty you gotta, wacky. You absolutely yeah. have to. So they brought, they end up finding one of George's old buddies from the 70s. And he says that George had this pretty nasty hobby that was that he liked to sneak drugs into people. 
by the way, sneaking drugs into people sounds like a really cute suit. Let's just call it what it is. He would drug people without their consent. Well, what he would do, I mean, one time they picked up a hitchhiker and they drugged this this hitchhiker, supposedly. Um, he also said that George helped someone get rid of their unwanted roommates, which sounds very familiar, by putting a hallucinogenic drug on surfaces so that when they'd go to do things, they'd touch this drug all the time and start hallucinating and then be like, this is too crazy. I actually have to move out of this place because I keep accidentally getting drugged just by living here. He also um, bragged to a friend that he'd gotten another neighbor to move by synthesizing a chemical that was very similar to mace and then piping it into the apartment. And the reason why he did this is that they played the radio too loud. I think my biggest red flag in this case is that is there anything more dangerous than a man who believes he is an absolute genius? To me, that's truly the scariest bit of this because it's like he's Mm -hmm. basically functioning in a way that he is above everyone around him and he doesn't answer to anyone, it appears, in his independent life. Of course, we know that his relationship with his wife kind of would tell you otherwise. I think that what is fascinating about George as a killer is that he's this quiet killer, but he still has things that make me think of him as a typical serial killer. So Mm. uh, we've talked about how it's a more feminine way to kill someone with poison. It's less out in the open. There's distance. But he still lived close enough that he was able to to watch with those binoculars and sort of see everything go down. So he's not doing it and then running. He's still getting um, whatever sick satisfaction in watching the whole thing unfold. And similar to this, the way a lot of serial killers that go in for the kill take a trophy, he has sort of a quiet way of doing that, I think, which is these murder mystery weekends where he's going to enact in some ways, the poisoning that he just did. So it's sort of the trophy is is a mental keepsake rather than it is a physical one, and he gets to reenact it, and that gives him something. It does beg the question, did he have other kills? And Absolutely. You know, There's no question. Sorry. I didn't yeah, want to no, answer I that think, question. No, There's I agree no with question. you. And Susan Gorak thought so, too. Uh, She went on to earn the rank of lieutenant, and she took over as head of the department's internal affairs division after this. And she's obviously just a rock star and a hero and a badass. And she did get to know George better than most people. And she says that she feels certain this was not his only victim. And listen, I know we just freaked you out. It's like, who's that quiet neighbor next to you? Do they have access to thallium, this incurable poison? But I do have some good news for you. I guess decent news because we try to end on something decent. You know, I can't even call this good news. It is decent news. A few years after the death of Peggy Carr, scientists actually discovered an antidote for thallium. It's a compound called Prussian blue, which is coincidentally also a gorgeous watercolor pigment. So if you're listening to this episode and you're worried about your neighbors poisoning you with thallium, please, you can rest assured that doctors are much more prepared today. Catch more gripping stories pulled straight from the headlines with all new original series and movies on Lifetime. And stream on the Lifetime app or on demand. 
check out mylifetime.com to find out what's airing because it might just be the case we talk about next. We used many sources in our research for today's episode. Among the most helpful were the following. The book Poison Mind by Jeffrey Good and Susan Gorak. Yes, you heard me right. Susan Gorak, the woman we just spent uh, the last half hour telling you all about. It's her first person account of what it was like going undercover, and I cannot recommend it enough. We also used an article from the South Florida Sun Sentinel entitled The Mensa Murders and an article from the Associated Press entitled Bizarre Details of Coca-Cola Poisoning Case Disclosed. If you'd like to learn more about this story, we highly recommend you check out these sources. Crime of a Lifetime is produced by Tanner Robbins. Our associate producers are Hazel May and us. Quinlan Posner. And Carrie Ipema. Our sound designer and editor is Arlen Ginsberg. Our senior producer is John Thrasher. McKamey Lynn is our supervising producer and Jesse Katz is our executive producer. If you like what you hear on the show, please subscribe, rate, and review Crime of a Lifetime on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. 